Welcome to Stars and Swords, I'm Alistair Stevens. In this episode, we move into part two of V.E. Schwab's The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue, but before we get to that, a little business, including a minor confirmation of an idea that I floated on last week's show, namely that I could shake up the scheduling for this series and cover the novel in five weeks rather than six, so we could end on Addie's birthday, March 10th. And, yep, that's going to happen. We're going to cover part three next week, then parts four and five together, which will be a long episode, I suspect, and parts six and seven in the final week. Those two episodes will be long, which will hopefully make up for a slightly thinner reading this week, and therefore a slightly shorter show. That, at least, is the plan. I'm also genuinely thrilled to announce that the poll for the next book we're going to cover on Stars and Swords has already closed, and the winner is Catherine Kerr's 1986 Celtic fantasy dagger spell. It is one part adventure romance, one part fantasy historical, one part exploration of destiny and reincarnation and the ties that bind us together. I think Kerr is a genuinely great writer, and this world building is not only some of the best you'll ever see, but some of the most original. So I encourage you to go and pick up your copy from your local library or from an independent bookseller of your choice. Perhaps a bookstore in Manhattan, for example, owned by a diffident young man with secrets yet to unfold. We'll get started with that series on March 17th. I'll confirm a schedule when we get a little bit closer to beginning that series. Right now, I'm thinking that four weeks ought to be enough to cover everything in the book, but the structure of the book is a little odd, and I don't want to leave us with any unusually long or arduous readings. With all of that out of the way, then, let's delve into part two of The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue, in which we'll learn more about the darkness, explore the early days of Addie's very long life and the hard-edged realities of her peculiar position, and we'll get to know Henry Strauss, whether we like it or not. And you know what? Let's do a little stage setting right now, because there comes a time in every relationship where you have to talk about Henry. <laughs> it's no surprise by the time that we end this week's reading that much of this book will be oriented around or caught between a strange kind of dysfunctional love triangle. Luke and his powers of the darkness on one side, and Henry and human warmth on the other. And I certainly don't say that to diminish the ambition of the book, but there is a degree to which Addie, blurred across the centuries of her life, will be pulled between these two extremes. And that's something of a problem, because while Luke is dangerous and seductive and sexy, which is easy because evil is always going to have the benefit of style, Henry is less so. Henry just is. He doesn't make that much of an immediate impression besides a kind of genial presence. More specifically, his appeal to Addie, at least in the first instance, isn't so much a thing that he is, but a thing that he can do. It's about her, facilitated by him, which is absolutely a common, if not exactly desirable, way of writing a romantic relationship, particularly of rounding out a romantic triangle. And if Henry is a little flat, a little commonplace, a little underdeveloped, and that's not all that Henry is, to be clear, but he certainly is all of those things, he suffers still further from direct contrast with Luke, who is all dynamism and presence and mental real estate. An ambitious reader with a pen and a paper could certainly count up how many times Addie thinks of each of them through the course of the book. So let's be clear, to many readers, Henry is a problem. For two reasons, in fact, who he is, and to a lesser but in some ways deeper extent, what he does. We're supposed to be invested in his relationship with Addie, as well as, and this is the greater challenge, being invested in him personally, and not every reader can bridge that gap. And I say this 
to reassure you that while I don't think that Henry is completely successful, I do think that Schwab is crafting him with a great deal of intention and specificity, both in terms of his character and in terms of the unfolding plot. We don't have enough yet to really understand him, though we can make some interesting inferences from what's presented in this week's reading. And I guess what I'm saying is that I think the book is doing something important, and though it may not entirely work, I think there are some interesting things about Henry that are waiting to be uncovered as we move through the rest of the book, and a lot of that is going to depend on how we read and interpret this text. So if you find him a little flat, a little dull, a little self-involved, I see you. You're not wrong. And maybe the execution isn't all it could be, but also it is just possible that there is a beating heart somewhere under the layers of... I don't know, we can only assume sweater vests and self-pity. We will get to it, I promise. We open the second part of the novel, though, with the next of our curated pieces of art. This time, a painting called One Forgotten Night by Samantha Banning. It's an image of a night sky adorned with seven small white stars, and the background tells us that it was painted as a part of a series in which the artist, quote, imagines her family, friends, and lovers as different iterations of the sky, end quote. And we know enough now to speculate that it was inspired by Addie, painted one night and then rediscovered by the artist the following morning, with no memory of how it came to be, thus the title. And of course, we'll meet Sam in just a few pages and return to this enigmatic picture. We pick up, unexpectedly, with Henry. The first part of the book has accustomed us to moving back and forth in time, but there wasn't an indication that we were going to completely break with Addie's POV until this chapter... And it's a little unsettling. The narrative mode is similar enough to Addie's that it feels as though it overlaps, but it is subtly different. And of course, Henry is a very different kind of character. His control over the narrative is much less absolute, and his point of view much less specific, much less strident. He is a more reactive character, at least through the bulk of this book, than Addie is. Just as importantly, in this section, we're also going to be introduced to Henry's supporting cast— and they're successful, I think, in their way. B is a rock star and makes an immediate impression on the page. And besides Addie, B might be my favorite character in the book, honestly. Quote, They stand there, in the middle of the store, two twenty-somethings in a preteen embrace. And maybe once upon a time, B would have leaned a little harder, made some speech about finding someone new, about deserving to be happy again. But they have a deal. She doesn't mention Tabitha, and Henry doesn't mention the professor. Everyone has their fallen foes, their battle scars. End quote. And apart from the conspicuous mention of a deal here, a contract between two people from which they both benefit in their own way, besides that, this is just an excellent character sketch, I think, and a poignant contrast with Addie, because there's enormous warmth and empathy and connectivity here generated by a shared history, a knowledge of each other that goes as deep as the bone. And what's more, a lovely significance given to this aromantic connection by that history. Much later in this book, we'll be able to wonder about why exactly B and Henry's relationship looks like this, why it works like this, and I think we'll be both relieved and impressed that it's written with this delicacy and specificity. And look at me, I sound like the narrative voice of the book. Observe this thing, and later we will have feelings about it, but not yet. And now that I think about it, it's not a coincidence, I suppose, that I should move into that voice. I mentioned last time how one of Schwab's most interesting techniques is exactly that kind of oracular glimpse of the future. And I also began my description of this book by saying that it loves a late reveal. 
And I think that the former is in large part a product of the latter. Schwab claims that she sometimes writes her books backwards, which gives ample opportunity, obviously, for this kind of foreshadowing, and more than foreshadowing, a conscious promise to the reader that this element will pay off, will have significance, will impact the flow of the story. And it's interesting that the structure of the book, this fondness for the late payoff, is forcing my commentary into a similar narrative mode. This will be important. We will have feelings about it, but just not yet. In any case, we have this moment of interaction between B and Henry. We have the acknowledgement of battle scars and old wounds, and we're introduced to the idea of Tabitha and, more interestingly, perhaps, of the professor, which sketches a lot of what we want and need to know about B. Most importantly, though, we see two things operating together here. Once upon a time, B would have pushed, but now, in a world after fairy tales, they have a deal, separating those two ideas in time, but not in theme. They are part of the same world. The accumulation of history here, the accretion of intimacy between these two people, has carried them away from fairy tales into something more mature, yes, but also less emotionally immediate, but more emotionally sophisticated, something more adult, but something more compromised. And, of course, we think of Addie, who, without that accumulation of history, is unable to move on from the fairy tale. And maybe that's better? Maybe at least it's more immediate. We get some history about Henry's time at the bookstore, including the detail, which is relevant to us more so than to the casual reader of the novel, I'm sure, that Henry studied theology as a grad student, which connects us back to Addie trailing her fingers over the theology books in the last chapter and idly thinking about her own studies of the sacred texts, but also points to an absence in the book. As I said last week, this book will refuse to even hint at a theological schematic of the world, which makes this choice for Henry a strange one. We aren't going to talk about God or gods in a meaningful interrogative sense. Instead, we're going to talk about abstract nouns with capital letters, love and memory and meaning and art. And again, that's not a criticism, but there's a version of this book in which Henry and Addie are actually schooled in theology or in philosophy and can talk extensively about the nature of their world and how it works and how they interact. In the absence of that, we have to attribute to Henry's choice of postgraduate studies a kind of gentle otherworldliness, an abstraction itself, a soft disconnection from anything rooted in the actual world. His choice here of theology is specific in that it does not matter. The overall impression at this stage is that Henry doesn't belong here. In fact, we can see that at the end of this first section with the quote, B insists that everyone who works in a bookstore wants to be a writer, but Henry's never fancied himself a novelist. Sure, he's tried putting pen to paper, but it never really works. He can't find the words, the story, the voice. Can't figure out what he could possibly add to so many shelves. Henry would rather be a story keeper than a storyteller. End quote. And obviously, the contrast with Addie is striking. The one all voice and no opportunity, the other with all the opportunity in the world and no voice. And perhaps generously, we're already primed to find something interesting in this part of Henry's character by the inclusion of the curated excerpts at the beginning of each part of this book. This is a text that finds something interesting in both the creation of art and, albeit perhaps to a lesser degree, its curation. But here again, we find what could be a footstep of Charles Perrault, who was himself, of course, a storykeeper. Perhaps the thematic opposition at the heart of the book, a book which consistently asserts the importance of art, isn't between artist and audience, but rather between artist and curator, two people 
to some extent aligned in purpose, albeit with very different methods. And if that's so, then we're in an interesting position because Addie isn't really an artist and Henry isn't really a story keeper. We can hear an echo of this drumbeat, I think, as we move into the next section in which we attend Robbie's free adaptation of Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream, which I trust doesn't need a footnote at this point, and we note how amazing B looks. Quote, Henry wonders as they wait in the queue if some people have natural style or if they simply have the discipline to curate themselves every day. End quote. Style, too, is art. Personal expression is art. Curation, to some extent, is art. Henry is adorned by the girl with the paintbrush becoming a part of this collective artistic expression, at least superficially, and we get the flash of the hand in the dark and the thumb on his cheek, and the careful reader may already recognize that gesture from another meeting in the dark back in the first part of this book. From there, we move through the description of the play, which is rich and decadent in its detail, and perhaps a little exhausting in its superficial, sophomoric, off-Broadway ambition, which I say with a great deal of affection, but yes, a certain familiarity too. On the other side of the play, though, something uncertain has happened to Henry. The narrative voice doesn't explore it. Henry is distant and evidently unhappy, but is taking no action to resolve it and offering us no insight on what has occurred. This is stage one of the Henry problem. Sulky, just isn't attractive, and furthermore, being withdrawn, refusing to communicate, is a bad scene for a protagonist of a book in which the narrative voice is so intimate. Eventually, after he's accepted the drink of the fae from one of the leads of the play, we get the explanation of, well, of what we might think of as Henry's depression, the storm clouds which metaphorize the gloom he feels, the disconnection. His parents don't understand, his brother doesn't understand, his sister amateurishly medicates him with mysterious pills which might as well be magical. And this right here, this is the second way in which Henry is a problem, and this is the much more serious way, because we are going to depict him pretty accurately and empathetically as having some kind of clinical depression. But we're not going to match that clinical diagnostic depiction with an appropriate kind of care. The word therapy does not appear in this book. Medication comes in the form of Muriel's pink umbrellas, which are depicted as both inconstant and insufficient. The book presents, romantically, elementally, perhaps, it presents depression as a thing which must simply be endured, and if the story slips for a moment, if your investment of belief is shaken, if you drop from this fairy tale back into the real world for a second, then that is an extremely irresponsible way of depicting mental health. It works in the fairy tale, where we can relocate it as a kind of ennui or isolation or longing or incompatibility with the world and find resolution in a magical, fundamental change of circumstances. We might find true love or kiss the right frog or realize that the magic was inside of us all along, but in the real world? Henry needs therapy. Henry needs a course of medication and a support system, and we will get moments of that, but only when they are compatible with the romantic image of this sad boy. The moment at the end of the chapter, when the fairy with the paintbrush kisses him, uh, quote, sorry, he says, the word automatic, like please, like thank you, like I'm fine, end quote. Apology, courtesy, and a denial of truth, this reluctance to occupy space, to assert harm or hurt or need. We can understand the temptation of this character in a fairy tale sense, in a gothic sense, but in real life, this kid needs help, and we're not going to offer it. 
Throughout this, of course, we're getting the various interactions at the play and the after party, the recurring beat that Henry doesn't feel that the way that people interact with him is real, that there is something wrong with their eyes, except notably for B. And ultimately, he surrenders to the sexual encounter at the end of the chapter and, metaphorically, we assume, but at this point, who knows, disappears. In chapter two, we move back to Addie, though we linger in the present. We don't even return to the thought of Henry immediately, instead moving forward to the demonstration of her insecurity, which is going to be a major theme through this part of the novel. James Sinclair has returned to New York, his luxury apartment, her luxury apartment, is no longer available. Addie wanders the city, stealing a carton of Chinese food, and finally making her way to a rooftop where we are told about a fling the year before with Sam, an artist. And this is the perfect opportunity for us to note the interesting simplicity and simultaneous complexity of these romantic relationships now that they have been demonstrated for us. On the one hand, there is an excellent casual diversity in this cast of characters, and sexuality is presented as fluid and varied and inclusive. Addie's relationship with Sam or Henry's relationship with Robbie are not depicted as being different from heterosexual relationships, nor is Henry betraying a more profound homosexuality by hooking up with a fairy at the after party. Both characters are bisexual, which is rare for a novel and all the more rare for a romance. But it raises a difficult question, I think. If both of these characters are casually bisexual, and this book is cool about the expression of sexual identity, why are the primary romantic relationships, why is the love triangle, heterosexually oriented? Is this, once again, the specter of compulsory heterosexuality? Well, it is, and it isn't. By which I mean that it absolutely is, but it's not the book's fault. Compulsory heterosexuality, a phrase for which we're indebted to the work of Adrian Rich, and a concept which I discussed back in the second episode of our series on Terry Miles' Rabbits, compulsory heterosexuality asserts and assumes a baseline heterosexual orientation, and in so doing, provides a kind of default insignificance to the question of gender in romantic or sexual relationships. Because if every romantic relationship is boy-girl, then we don't have to interrogate the roles or significance of gender in romance. And though compulsory heterosexuality itself is harmful, that ability to assume a baseline insignificance can be helpful to the author, because it forces the reader, it forces the narrative itself, to skip over gender and get to what is specific, to get to character. If we gender-flipped one of these characters, and I know, even by saying gender-flip, that I'm implying the existence of a gender binary here, but for reasons we will discuss later in this series, this is a book that asserts a pretty clear gender binary. If we gender-flip either Henry, or perhaps more interestingly, Luke, then we are immediately making a series of powerful narrative moves opposing or assimilating our notions of masculinity and femininity with darkness or with light, with the past or with the future, with sincerity and insincerity, with good and with evil, the nature of the romantic triangle changes in that it becomes primarily, albeit superficially, about gender rather than about character. What does it mean that this old god who deals and manipulates and hungers is presented as a woman? Or... What does it mean that Addie's connection to memory and presence and comfort and the hope of a real present love is a woman? And though we should have means of talking about gender and metaphor and symbolism, it sucks that such a reductive, primarily gendered interpretation would be inevitable. All of which is to say that compulsory heterosexuality is restricting the kinds of stories we can tell, but that isn't, I think, the fault of this particular book. 
Addie takes refuge on the rooftop and Sam shows up with friends and we get the repetition of an idea that we saw in part one with Toby first and then again with Isabel. When someone repeats the same thing to Addie separated in time by forgetfulness, it is proof that that is indeed an authentic thought, a genuine insight that occurs spontaneously each time. Quote, these days everyone's looking down, uses Sam. It's nice to see someone looking up. End quote. And here we're really leaning on the isolation of New York City from the natural world. The absence of stars has led to a more subtle and pervasive forgetfulness. And of course, we're tempted to immediately think of the night sky painting from the beginning of this part and to Addie's constellation of freckles. The absence of stars from the rooftops of the city has caused people to stop looking for stars. And through the mediating presence of Sam's art, we can think of the stars as art themselves and the looking down as a consequence of the absence of that art. This is what art does in the pages of this book. It elevates, it inspires, and it rewards. And again, what's interesting here is the absence of the schematic, I think. It would be common in another book to have the stars stand in themselves as a metaphor for God, or for a profound infinitude, or for the grandeur of the universe and of the natural world, but here, the stars themselves are sufficient. Art itself is sufficient. Art is not pointing toward a greater referent. It is itself. One last thing we'll note, because it'll come up later if we aren't already thinking about it, but the stars in the night sky are separated the one from the other by the darkness. And the brighter the lights of the everyday world, the light pollution of New York City, for example, the fewer stars sparkle and the more oppressive the darkness becomes. In this way, we might infer a value to the rarity of art, that one of the things that makes a piece of art special is everything around it which is not art, which is not intentional, which is not special. We cut from there to Paris in 1714, where we draw comparisons between Addie and any impoverished woman of the time. The assumption that she is a sex worker is all but immediate, reducing her worth as a person to her utility as a sexual object, but then we pivot to the understanding that her circumstances mean that not only will she be alone, separated from other people except in fleeting moments, but that she cannot integrate into society. She can't interact with society. She can't live in town or take a job or even rent a room. And this might point us in another direction. This might give us another lens through which we can understand this book as a text. Last time, we talked about how to interpret this book as a fairy tale and demonstrated, I think, a couple of the ways in which that reading is both validated by the text, and it will be validated again many times in this week's reading, and also how looking at this book as a fairy tale gives us new interpretive perspectives to better understand what is happening. We are meeting the book on its terms. But the fairy tale is not the only lens through which this book can be understood. Let's consider for a moment how this book works, or does not work, as a study of capitalism. Louis XIV of France, the Sun King, dies in September of 1715, just over a year after Addie makes her pact with the darkness. By some historical measures, this death marks the beginning of the Age of Enlightenment, the political and philosophical movement across Western Europe that leads, scientifically and economically and legally, to the modern Western world. This isn't cause and effect, exactly, and certainly some historians draw the beginning of the Enlightenment earlier than the death of Louis XIV, but it is certainly a turning point in the history of France, leading directly to the revolution some 70 years later. 
This is connected to and is a continuation of our discussion last week about the influence on this book of the work of Charles Perrault, the beginning of a transition between an older oral tradition of folktales and the advent of mass market literature. In a number of different ways, artistically and economically and politically and scientifically, Addy really is born at the dawn of modern France. And many of these changes, including both the Enlightenment and the Revolution, can be blamed in large part on the rise of the bourgeoisie, the French middle class which has expanded in the space between the upper tiers of society and the working poor. This has been happening for centuries by this point, as the various guilds of early modern France have been working to drag economic and political power away from the aristocracy. By the time we get to the 18th century, having brought wealth and empire to France through aggressive mercantilism, we can see systems that we would recognize as modern capitalism. So by this point, we can see a complete reordering of how we see ourselves, how we see each other, how we interact with our society, and most importantly, a complete reordering of our relationship with time. Because once we are part of a capitalist system, Time becomes a resource. It becomes something that we possess in limited quantities, something from which we must seek to extract value. Because at the root of capitalism, production is the only thing that matters. This is where our modern notions of work and of leisure, where the concept of wasting time comes from. We work, and if we aren't working, there'd better be a damn good reason. And this is where the perspective gets narratively interesting, because Addie has nothing but time, but no means of production. She cannot work, she cannot create, she cannot produce value for the capitalist system. And because of her inability to amass possessions and resources, she can't even interact with capitalism as a kind of economic apex predator, hoarding and redistributing wealth at the highest levels. But for all that, this is what I think is really interesting. The invisible life of Annie LaRue has very little to say on the subject of capitalism. We like luxury and comfort, but also, we're cool and single and bohemian enough that we don't need luxury and comfort. Money seems to come easily enough, even to a guy who's running a small bookstore. At least his poverty is somewhat informed. And he's running a physical bookstore, you guys, in one of the most expensive pieces of real estate on the planet. In fact, now that I think about it, that's another example of the same underlying issue. In a naturalistic novel, in a novel that is seeking to say something about our real world, the day-to-day the -day mechanics of life in the 21st century, particularly life in modern New York, then Henry's bookstore shouldn't be in business. It shouldn't exist. And if it does, there needs to be a narrative provision to enable that existence, an explanation as to why it is still there. But again, the book doesn't care about these things. And between the heaven of theology and the hell of capitalism, we are beginning to get a real sense of the bounds of this book, a real sense of the type of story we're reading and what it cares about. And what it cares about isn't theology, and it isn't capitalism, and it isn't history, really. What it cares about is people. Addie's bird is cracked, and she is struggling to survive in Paris. We get the brief passage where she seeks shelter at the church, deciding that there must be a light to balance out the darkness, but the priest bars her entrance and locks the door, emphasizing again what kind of story this is. And between this passage and the next, in which Addie sells her virginity for the price of ten sol, we get an important sense of Addie's modernity, a more full sense of Addie's modernity than we gained even in last week's reading. And not 18th century modernity, not 18th century contemporaneity, but real, assertive, self-possessed 21st century modernity. She does not believe in God and in the church, though 
it is a casual, non-political disbelief. She seeks her own sexual pleasure. She rejects the shame, so deliberately overlaid upon it by centuries of oppression and specifically by the judgment of her own mother. And it's not, I'm sure, that there were no women like Addie in the 18th century. It's that we're not interested in interrogating that. Addie is presented to the modern reader as someone who is emotionally accessible. We can understand her right from the jump because she is very much like us. We get here the overlaid fantasies of Addie's stranger confessing love and speaking to want and desire, and then the darker transition into Luke, into the dark woods and the soft mouth and the blood. Addie realizes that this is not the life she traded for. This is not the deal that she made. And there are some things that are not worth survival. And again, it's worth noting the value placed here on sexual autonomy, yes, but also on romance and intensity and honesty. The value placed on being in the same space and time with another human being. Sex is not presented in this book as something fragile, something sacred, and certainly not the sole preserve of a Christian marriage, but it is also not something to be used. It is authentic. More on that later. From here, we move into the after-the-fact evocation of Addie's memories of Paris, which is a powerful narrative move that I'm honestly grateful distances us a little from her direct experience of this freezing winter, the, the night and the cold that all but claims her on the streets. She wakes to find herself on the cart full of the dead, a metaphorical rebirth that marks a more sincere turning point, I think, than any that we've seen so far, and one that extracts from Addie a price, her wooden bird. The nature of this rebirth is the explicit severing of the connection back to Villon, of course, and by extension, the last thread of extant memory holding her to the life that was hers. But there's also something more. Because when we come back in chapter four, Addie is transformed. She is drugging a prospective client and taking for herself a space created by his borrowed authority, a room bought and paid for, a bed now unoccupied. It's been, we learn, a year since she made her deal with the darkness, and though she's chafing against the repetition of day after day, we can see through her capability and her ruthlessness, or if not ruthlessness, willingness to be extremely assertive, we can see that she has changed. She has been reborn. And so we introduce a recurring beat in this story. We introduce the return of the darkness. And here again, we see that this transformation has occurred, right? We're told that she spent much of the previous year praying to him, making offerings of coins, which must have been a huge sacrifice, begging for his presence. And now when he shows up all unannounced, her instinctive response is to whip the bottle of laudanum at his head. Addie transformed. As we see when the darkness offers to end her suffering for the low, low price of her soul, and she refuses. Quote, if some part of her wavered, if some small part wanted to give in, it did not last beyond a moment. There is a defiance in being a dreamer. I decline, she growls. End quote. The power of dreams here, possibly presented as being similar to the power of art, we lack enough information to make a judgment on that just yet, but stick around. Speaking of which, the next chapter introduces us directly to Henry's sister Muriel, and I have to say that as of this reading, I have not figured Muriel out. She's immediately significant in the text because she's not an artist. She, in fact, rejected that life and is instead an art critic. Now, obviously, I'm going to come down pretty enthusiastically on the side of criticism, of good, thoughtful, generous, accessible criticism, at least. But, well, here's the quote. Quote, 
Muriel Strauss, who at 24 only ever talks about the world in terms of conceptual authenticity and creative truth, who's been a darling of the New York art scene since her first semester at Tisch, where she quickly realized she was better at critiquing art than creating it, end quote. And there is here a possible backhanded swipe at artists, at least the artists of the New York art scene, that they love being adored by critics more than they like creating art. It's not quite clear enough, it's not quite strong enough, and thus I don't know yet what to make of Muriel. And though we get precious little mention of it here within the framework and the established expectation of this book, I don't know what to make of David either. Henry's relationships with his parents are much more clear and much more painful, but his siblings are odd, and it's possible, I suppose, that there's just not much there there, but I see the footprints, I see the signs, and I will figure them out before we're done with this book. Across town, Addie wakes on the rooftop and meets Sam again, accompanying her down into her apartment and reflecting on the one-sided familiarity of this romantic relationship and on the nature of Sam's art, specifically the piece referenced at the beginning of this part of the book, the evocation of Addie's freckles as stars in the night sky. Here we return to one of the most important ideas in the book, and now we have enough information to begin to really understand it, both metaphorically and in terms of what it means to Addie herself. Addie is captured in Sam's art, and there's enough there. The idea itself is strong enough that Sam now recognizes part of that art in Addie, and it feels like familiarity. That reciprocity, that seeding of oneself across the world through the mechanisms of inspiration, and then the recognition of oneself in those fragments. This is true of Addie, of course, but it's so clear in Addie's case because of the negative space of absent context around her. With no other impression made on the world, the tiny marks that Addie leaves are easier to see. But we can only infer that these marks are made by everyone all the time, or at least made by everyone who cares about art, everyone who can sink into that world. Addie, though tempted to stay, leaves Sam's apartment and reads for a moment the Odyssey at a sidewalk cafe, quote, Here, Odysseus thinks he's heading home to be reunited with Penelope after the horrors of war, but she has read the story enough times to know how far the journey is from done. She skims, translating from Greek to modern English. I fear the sharp frost and the soaking dew together will do me in. I am bone-weary, about to breathe my last, and a cold wind blows from a river on toward morning. End quote. A fun detail here is that Schwab is borrowing and attributing entirely to Addie the very popular and successful 1996 Robert Fagel's translation of The Odyssey. So if you enjoy that prose, you can pick that book up too. We see in this quote the bringing together of Addie's memories of Paris and her current existence in New York, the blurring of the blank spaces between the chapters of this book, the cold of the streets, the cold of the rooftop, though, of course, unlike Odysseus, Addie is not returning home. And perhaps that's why the book isn't working for her. Rather, we're told, quote, she wants to be stolen away, wants to forget, a fantasy or perhaps a romance, end quote. And this returns us to the transportive power of art, just like Addie's trip to the movies or Henry's experience of the theatre earlier in this part of the book. We cut back to Paris a full year after the appearance of the darkness and the throwing of the laudanum, and Addie cleverly infiltrates a dressmaker's shop. She tries on masculine clothing, the, quote, armor of their fashion, end quote, but finds it a bad fit for her because she's just so gosh darn feminine, which is perhaps another nod toward the gender binary as it's presented in this book, quote, the men in Paris are soft, even pretty, but they are still men, end quote. More on that, I think, as we go forward. 
Leaving the shop, Annie once again meets with the Darkness, who offers to escort her. She agrees for a series of practical reasons that really only apply if you're a real member of society and you have a reputation to protect, but ultimately reaches the truth. Perhaps she is lonelier than she would say. Perhaps an enemy's company is still better than none. And though that may be true, we must note that Addie has continued to change, continued to find her strength in this new way of life, because rather than rejecting the darkness's offer as she did the year before, out of spite and defiance, now she has a reason to keep living. She's seen an elephant, and there's so much more to see. Quote, Addie grins at the shadow then, a small, feral smile, all teeth, feasting on the way the humor falls from his face. It is a small victory, and yet so sweet to see him falter, even for an instant. End quote. This faltering is the first time that we are shading the character of the darkness. Though he has been foiled before, the facade has never slipped. Now we see that he is perhaps more of a personality, more of an emotional being, more of a person than we may have thought. This, to no one's surprise, will be significant. What's more important here, though, is the shift that's occurred in Addie herself. Her life may still be a bare thing of fleeting comfort and dubious safety, but she has been able, as Sam will observe on the rooftop in Manhattan 300 years in the future, to look up. Elephants and champagne and the sunset over Notre Dame, these things, these moments of art and experience are what make her life, and by extension, all lives, endurable. And then the last part of the narrative drops into place. The last part of this complex machine that will power this book through to its final page. Addie returns to the bookstore and Henry remembers her. And I'm not going to quote for obvious reasons the entire page which follows thereafter, but it is beautiful and confounding and bewildering and dizzying. The repetition of I remember you, I remember you, I remember you is so simple and so powerful in that simplicity that... I think it is a really masterful piece of writing in a book that, again, is just beautifully written start to finish. The date that Addie and Henry go on is pleasantly conventional, and there is a spark between the two that, if it's not exactly scorching the pages, is at least engaging. And more than that, it is the pleasure of seeing Addie navigate the challenges presented by this new circumstance while also navigating what is, to her, familiar. Quote, "'Balance tipped, restored, and tipped again,' And it is the kind of game she's played a hundred times, a sparring match made of small gestures, the stranger smiling across the table. But this is not her stranger, and he is not smiling. End quote. Being known has been weaponized against her. This game of point and counterpoint has been used as a means of weakening her, of seducing her into hopelessness, and she has had to learn the rules of the game herself. And there's an interesting maneuver here, because Addie is holding the game here, this challenge which has been contested 100 times or more in the past. She's holding it apart from her conversation with Henry, but it is still present. Unlike her earlier conversation with Sam, as intimate as that was, where there was no question of contest or challenge or balance. And that is, of course, because in her conversation with Sam... Addie is not truly vulnerable. She can't be unbalanced because she can't be known. This, and by implication the many times that she sat across the table from Luke, this is something different. The transition back to Paris this time is particularly bracing, not just because we're transitioning in time and space, we've become rather accustomed to that after so many pages of this book, but because we are shifting narrative modes as powerfully as we ever have. We are shifting from what's become a rather comfortable, if yes, paranormally inflected romance story, to the most explicitly fairy tale scene that this book has thus far enjoyed. 
Three years have passed, the darkness once again visits Addie, and this time we are thrust full-on into a recreation of Beauty and the Beast, complete with lavish dinner and servants and a certain self-awareness. Quote, Come, Adeline, he says, I am no fey thing here to trap you with food and drink. And yet everything seems to have a price. End quote. And a little later, and much more importantly, quote, What is your name? His eyes slide from the corner of the room back to her. Why must I have one? All things have names, she says. Names have purpose. Names have power. She tips her glass his way. You know that, or else you wouldn't have stolen mine. A smile tugs at the corner of his mouth, wolfish, amused. If it is true, he says, that names have power, then why would I hand you mine? End quote. The traditional power of names in fairy tales and in the old stories is well documented, of course, and it seems that Addie understands this as well. She must have been reading her Perrault during her time in Paris. There's no reason, of course, for the darkness to have taken her name as a part of their original deal, assuming that her name, too, would fade as quickly as the memory of her face. But names do have meaning, almost axiomatically. Names are an encapsulation of identity, a symbol of meaning that is specific and is personal, and it's interesting to speculate on Addie's meaning in that last quote when she says that names also have purpose. I mean, names do have a purpose. They indicate to the referent. They mean the thing to which they belong. But perhaps Addie has a broader meaning in mind, a way in which the name forces change in the subject. The name may be active. Certainly, we've observed a change from Adeline to Addie. In fact, Let's put a pin in this idea and continue to watch how names influence character because we're about to finally give the darkness his own name, which we'll use throughout the rest of the novel. Luke, which comes from the Latin for light-giving and is, as Addie says, etymologically connected to Lucifer, where ironically associating the fallen angel of the same name. So there's a poetic inversion happening here, echoing the biblical inversion that the darkness which has haunted and pursued Addie is named for the light. Is this an attempt to redefine the darkness, per her previous statement about the power of names? We can also think here of the servants of the house, none of whom are given names, none of whom are therefore treated as though they are individuals or real people, not even by Addie. They are simply puppets, as Addie notes, under Luke's power. Luke again tells Addie that their deal can be concluded at any time. She just has to hand over her soul. But here we are concluding the three-beat of this week's reading, having begun in hot defiance, and matured into the love of life and novelty, and now returning to that defiance, but of a colder and more personal sort. Quote, If you'd only given me what I asked for, I would have burned out in time, would have had my fill of living, and we would, both of us, have won. But now, no matter how tired I am, I will never give you this soul. End quote. And what might we make of that specific pronoun? Hmm? This soul, not my soul? Is Addie perhaps feeling less than human? If so, what does that mean for our understanding of the currency of trade? And of course, that deal, we would both of us have won, echoes Henry's deal with B, a much more prosaic kind of deal, of course. But the idea that deals are made all the time, I give a little, you give a little, we both benefit. It is Luke's unfair exploitation of Addie's vulnerability that has really soured this deal. From there, we conclude this week's reading rather swiftly, with fragments that'll be picked up in the next chapter, moments which point toward the shape of the rest of the story, the brief fragility of Addie's date with Henry, a date which continues on late into the night as they hold on to what Addie fears could be temporary, though at last she's able to tell him her name, to speak the word and to have him repeat it, 
And then we're back in Paris in another July on another anniversary. And Addie has prepared for the semblance of a comfortable life in an attempt to win the next round against Luke. But he doesn't come, denying her the punctuation of his presence. The only real way of marking time in this endless run of days. And denying her, too, the fleeting moment of recognition and acknowledgement that he alone gives her. And finally, centuries hence, we get the very short chapter of Henry walking home, thinking Addie's name and the mystery of the woman who looks at him and sees him only as he is. More on that, too, next week, when we'll discuss part three of The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue and get to know a little more about Henry and his friends, spend some time with the worst character in this book, and finally tell the truth. And if you enjoy the work that we do here and you'd like to hear more of it, then I recommend heading over to patreon.com slash nextword and pledging your support, because not only will that continue the existence of this show, but it will also get you access to some imminent and overdue bonus episodes. This week, a pre-recorded discussion of the first season of the Rabbits podcast, and then next Saturday, February the 24th at 8pm Central Time, I'm going to host a live discussion on the Next Word Discord server about the fantastic 1992 movie Sneakers. If you can come and hang out and ask some questions, share some thoughts, talk about your theories, that would be great. If you'd rather listen after the fact, then the audio will be posted to the Patreon page an hour or so after I'm done. It is one of my favorite films of all time. It is going to be an absolute blast. So lots to enjoy and even more coming soon. That's patreon.com slash next word. And that'll do it for this week. Until next time, as we always say, quote, the glow of the fairy lights is just enough to see by and Addie stretches out in the lawn chair and opens the Odyssey and reads of strange lands and monsters and men who can't ever go home until the cold lulls her to sleep. Thanks for listening.